Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, this is the trigger warning. We're going to be talking about horror culture, which could involve sensitive subjects such as violence, child abuse, rape, there will be foul language. We're going to be talking about dark stuff. So um, that is the warning. Coming up, we're going to be speaking with author Paula D. Ash and Robert P. Atone, as well as actress and producers Julianne Prescott, and a big deal for me, Pollyanna McIntosh, this you know woman from this movie you may have heard of called uh, The Woman. The Woman. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> but today, we have the pleasure of the company of another author, Mr. Jonathan Jans, best known for such works as The Dismembered, Children of the Dark, and Marla. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Yeah. So excited to be here. I don't remember how much we may or may not have talked about the uh, theme of the call before we got on here, but basically what we're going to do is we're going to go through your um, experiences with the horror genre from childhood through teenage years and, and adult years and try to see if we can identify what it is about horror that you personally love. That said, it's not meant to be a therapy session. So if there's anything that you don't want to answer, just let us know and we'll move on. But starting with childhood, what are some of your earliest memories of scary things? Yeah, my early and I don't want to make myself out to be some like victim or whatever, but um, I had a pretty scary early childhood. I think Um, the the setting where I grew up was scary. Um, Now I think it's awesome. But at the time it was scary. There was it was this little tiny shack of a house. On our right was a, a deep, dark graveyard. Behind us was this deep, dark woods. And then to the left of us, there was a uh, woman who was losing her mind mm-hmm. and would often scream like for no reason for long periods. And so that, that was scary. Um, my biological father, was he, he was really scary. Um, and there were like a lot of terrible things that went on there. Once when I was little, I, he kind of abducted me and I ended up living in a car, like sleeping in a car by myself every night for about two weeks. Um, oh, wow. So like the, like my little like early childhood was scary. So um, what what I think I found in horror was a lot of like safe, scariness like cozy mysterious delicious scariness scariness that wouldn't actually harm me um so i was uh my my mom and my mom was always she was awesome by the way she was always into like twilight zone the tv show she was into in search of with leonard nimoy Mm -hmm. um she would bring home albums like the equivalent of of a book on tape or an audiobook she'd bring albums of like scary like edgar Allan poe um audiobooks from the library and so, like, she was always playing scary stories on our al- on our record player um, or showing me something, you know, like Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with William Shatner, you know. Uh, so it was it was constantly that kind of stuff. And that's that became like my refuge from the actual scary stuff that was around me in my real life. So I think that's where it started. Yeah. It sounds like you were almost fated to work in horror from an early age. I mean, yeah. you've got the environment, the upbringing with your father and just kind of a default uh feed of horror culture from your mother like she could have you know gone with well grim's fairy tales are pretty dark too but you know like like children's <laughs> type stuff but instead she chose to uh, to go with horror so yeah early start yeah early start great start my mom is the mvp there in that regard. Yeah, definitely 
was she involved in choosing to live next to a graveyard? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> she was. She was super young. She was 21, and it was like the only place we could afford. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, she. I, I don't think. I don't think that early part of my life or her well, life. She just told you that so that she could live next to a graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. You have a choice. Cheapest way you find. Sorry. It was all a front. It was all a front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of like worked out that way, but uh, we, we made the best of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would be friends of horror. It's not having to make the best of it. It's already the best. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. So did you participate in Halloween as a kid? Oh, big time. Loved Halloween so much. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Yeah. And, nice. and yeah, and yeah. My friends and I, you know, being near the graveyard, being in a little small town, hay rides, all the accoutrements of Halloween, that was just like synonymous with my life. And my birthday is October 27th, by the way. So ah. every year I'd have a birthday, you know, it would be right around the same time. It would, we would celebrate Halloween and birthday concurrently. So it was perfect. You know, it's funny is we were talking about this. It- this funny thought popped to mind of, I wonder if the, the graveyard did anything for Halloween, which I, I'd say it's funny because at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, what, what, what graveyard ever does that? But at the same time, <laughs> I thought to myself, but that's kind of like a missed opportunity. It kind of is, isn't it? I mean, it's a gray area, you know, they'd have to find some way to do something that'd be respectful. Yeah. You know I mean, so, but they're, you would think that they could find something to do. Yeah, yeah. You decorate well, the entrance at least. Yeah. Actually, if nothing else, you probably do like a social thing where okay, everybody help come, you know, clean the place up, and then we'll have a party. There you go. <laughs> I love that. Actually, I hope any any graveyard owners are listening right now because hmm. yes. I think this is a fabulous idea. Untapped market. <laughs> yeah, do it. Time. Yeah. Uh, do you remember having a favorite costume? Mm, you know those old hard plastic things that scrape ben Cooper. With, yeah. Yeah, with the rubber band on the back. So yeah. I had yeah. one that was Godzilla. And oh, even man. though that's only kind of horror adjacent, I really, really like that one a lot. Fire breathing, that sort of thing. Least favorite costume. Oh, man. Good question. Um, I don't think I had one because I think that no matter what I wore, it was exciting and awesome. Like Halloween, everything about Halloween is just amazing. So yeah, I probably just had different, different like... Uh, tears of how much I'd love them. Mm-hmm. Right? But there was okay. never one that I disliked or felt embarrassed by. Most okay. favorite to least favorite. No, no, not favorite. Right. Uh, did you, uh, living next to a cemetery, did you do uh, any kind of decorations around the house? We should have. We couldn't really afford. We, we really were dirt poor. Couldn't right. really afford any of that. But one time I did do something I shouldn't have done in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. At one of these aforementioned Halloween birthdays, you know, get-togethers, the next morning, we call them puffballs. It was it's in Delphi, Indiana, that's where I grew up. I in my books like Children of the Dark, I refer to it as Shadeland. But anyway, um yeah, puffballs are like these large somewhere some somewhere in the fungus category. They they start out as white and very like springy and fresh. I mean, they're the size of like watermelons. Um but mm-hmm. then once they they get a little older, they start to turn darker and then they like, you know, smell and then they become spongy and just gross and all these spores come out of them. But the point is, is that my friends and I that morning after my birthday party went into the graveyard and had a puffball fight. Uh, <laughs> it started out as like throwing these white spongy pieces, but then as, as we got desperate, we started to get into the decaying, disgusting. And of, of course, course. The, the, you know, the, the collateral damage was the headstones. They began to just get coated 
with this disgusting substance. We were like probably nine at the time. Mm-hmm. Probably should have known better. Probably should have realized how disrespectful it was. Didn't think so. Um, didn't think about it. But somebody who lived near us must have seen us because a policeman showed up. And, um, you know, of course, we thought we were going to get arrested. We were just terrified. And he he was, I, in retrospect, mostly okay, but gave us a really severe guilt trip. Of course. Say, say, how mm-hmm. would you feel if this were your parent or brother or whatever buried here? Would do you, do you feel like this is a good idea? You know what's funny is I when we were at my grandmother's memorial service, the memorial service was in this little chapel on the graveyard property. And I don't know whose kids they were, but there were some kids playing outside yeah. and they were like six to 10 ish age. And, you know, they didn't know that there was a, a service going on inside. So they're running around and screaming and playing and whatever. <laughs> of course. And mm-hmm. I was standing near the door and with my cousin and I could see my cousin was getting a little upset and she went to go out there and stop them. And I, I tried to stop her, but I failed, but I th- remember thinking to myself, grandma would love this. Mm-hmm. Like, She'd have been happy. Um, right. So anyway, right. I think that's right. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's it. And he, he, he could have been worse. He could have like shout. He didn't shout. He just had a very severe look on his face. And, and for sure, the lesson was learned. We did yeah. not do that ever again. We thought our lives were over. But yeah, he he handled it. I guess to to be fair, there there probably were people there that would not have enjoyed it. <laughs> true, very yeah. true, very yeah. true. Yeah. Little rugrats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you have any scary dreams when you were a kid? Oh yeah. Oh, I, I'm I'm a lifelong like I I always think any of, recurring like, scary dreams. Oh wow. Um. Yeah. 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 I do actually. I do. There's one in particular I've had, but I only have it when I am um when I have a super high fever. And that, that's not very often. So I, I, I've been a lifelong insomniac. I've been a lifelong sufferer of vivid dreams and nightmares. But uh, the one that I'm that you asked about, it, I, I am at a, an extreme height, like so, like probably 300 yards above the earth. I'm on this spire, like like some sort of really really thin like tower um, made of stone, and um, below me are um, just like pavers. And each paver is for as far as the eye could see, um, they all have like numbers on them and mm. they're all very small. They're all probably like, you know, six inches in diameter. And I have to leap from, from the tower and land on the exact correct one or else all my family will die. Um, and I somehow know this in my dream. And, and I have that, I've had that same recurring dream since I was like three or four years old. It's really specific and really weird. It um, is very yeah. specific, especially with the number. Okay, so one quick thing that comes to mind. Did you by any chance see uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at a young age? So funny. No, I didn't. Well, I mean, I saw it when it came <laughs> out, but last night, my, my youngest and I watched Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and we mm. might watch Crusade tonight, which is really kind of funny that you mentioned that. But yeah, it, it, that reminds me a little bit, right? Because Indy, mm-hmm. at one point, like near the end, correct? He has yeah. to like step on the correct one or mm-hmm. yeah. And in the Latin alphabet, Jehovah begins with an I. Right, 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 right. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> right. That's right. Cause he makes the wrong decision at first. So good. So good. That is a crazy and poorly. detailed and yes, you have chosen poorly. No, <laughs> such a, such a crazy and detailed dream for such a young age. I mean, the pillar, the, the pavers and them all being numbered like that is there's something there. 
It feels very like Lovecraftian. It feels like the old, kind of like the old gods and some like memory embedded deep within me in some other life. Uh, but yeah, it, it is. It's I know I know how weird it sounds, but it, it's so vivid and it just fills me with such dread. Well, you'd mentioned your bio dead potentially being scary, and yeah. I mean this is sort of like a walking on eggshells kind of thing. Of okay, I have to yeah. be very careful here. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, we were told when, when he was, my mom divorced him when I was like four or five, but, but when he was home, the rule was we couldn't talk. Yeah, we, he just didn't because he, as he told my mom, he didn't want to be reminded that he had a family. Um, oh, wow. So we couldn't speak if he was there. And if we did, there were consequences. So yeah, I think from an early age, I was very afraid of making a mistake of, of consequences of even minor mistakes. So maybe there is a correlation. Mm-hmm. Can't even talk around him. Eesh. No. <laughs> it's funny because the next question is was there ever a time you were actually ter- terrified of something in real life <laughs> you got options yeah. you, you have a few options <laughs> you got a whole smorgasbord here man yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, shall we go with that that we just discussed or do you want to say something else <laughs> yeah one specific thing that, that comes from that there was an experience with fire that I'm that I'm very afraid of. I you know a, a really specific thing from real life I was afraid of that has nothing to do with him is in that same house there was like a cistern like down in the basement. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I'm using the correct terminology, but but a little like a, a well like a hole. Yeah, a cistern. Yeah, there we go. And it was just this blackish brackish water, and I was so afraid of of being pulled down into that to my death of something. And there's one, there's an Amityville. I think it's called Amityville. The yeah. Deep. Yeah. That was the first thing that came to mind. I was going to say like, well, at least it wasn't bright green. That Okay. So <laughs> it, in, in that movie, something comes out of there, right? Maybe it is the eponymous demon in Amityville. Mm-hmm. The demon comes out and does pull somebody down. And when I finally saw that, like, it's like all my fears were realized. Like, Oh my gosh. You know, it was, it was, it was a rational fear because it can happen because it happened in this mm. movie. It's funny that you bring that up too, because I know Chris has got a script that I've proofread that has something involving something like that too. No way! <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. That's amazing. Well, the follow-up to that is: Did that introduce any fears that you hadn't had before? I don't know how that would necessarily affect you in your daily life. Although maybe, though maybe the fear, the fire one might. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that cistern, I think even before I ever went on a lake, in a lake, in an ocean, in water, even before I ever knew what a shark was, I think I was afraid of water because of that. Mm. Like the unknown that water represented. Basically, I'm afraid of all the elements, it sounds like. We've covered fire, mm-hmm. water, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. anything. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that's the thing about like horror, not to get too philosophical here. But, you know, I think that you need to know I think some of the most effective horror writers and and makers of any horror stories, like they know what it's like to be afraid because they're afraid themselves or have been afraid themselves. Being able to tie into personal experience. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Flip side of the same question. Was there ever a time in your childhood when you felt completely calm or safe or bliss? Hmm. Hmm. Those, those would be rare, but, but I do think that like my, my grandparents, my mother, I had an aunt who was amazing. Like I had four all-star like people around me. So even though there was like scary stuff and unpleasant stuff, like whenever I was with them, like everything was pretty good. Everything, everything was actually often amazing and comforting. So uh, there was definitely a duality to my childhood and thank goodness. Right. (laughs) Because otherwise it would be pretty gloomy and terrible. Yeah. 
looking back at some of the media that we discussed earlier, so Twilight Zone and Search of the Edgar Allan Poe albums, anything else or anything of those stick out to you as top one or two favorite? There are two others I haven't mentioned that are way up there. So one of the albums she brought home must have been like an anthology horror album. And uh, there was a story by Charles Dickens called The Signal Man. And that one, it had like a little bit of sound effects, like some music and stuff in it. It, I still hear it in my head. It still <laughs> terrifies me. It just imprinted itself upon me. Of course, back then it was in a terrifying, nightmarish way. Now it's in just a fond memory. I still tap into that kind of way. The other one was there, were the, there was this traveling group. You know how you, you have like convocations at an elementary school? We had one every year they would come there called the Cole Marionettes. Cole, I'm thinking C-O-L-E must have been a last name or something. But um, they would perform. <laughs> I mean, I look back, it's kind of like quaint and pitiful and silly. But like at the time, it was so transporting. But they would bring like a little tiny stage. We would go to the gymnasium at my elementary school. And in the gymnasium, there would be this little stage set up for the little marionettes, right? And all everything would go dark. And so there'd be these little spotlights on the little stage, and then they'd perform a play, these marionettes. And and the one I remember most vividly was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, that thing, the Ichabod Crane, the Headless Horseman, all that mm-hmm. stuff, that just, I still see those, I still see the galloping horseman with, with, that, with that, whatever, flaming pumpkin head. I still mm-hmm. see that galloping across, you know, dr- you know, drawn by strings, and it just still makes me feel like a little kid. Yeah, I remember that one too. Uh, not so much the play. I mean, you got to see it live, but um, yeah, I, I definitely have fond memories of the early uh, animated Ichabod Crane. Yeah, Bing Crosby, right? Is Ichabod maybe? As, as the voice? I think so. I think he was. I think he narrated and even sang in that version. If we're thinking of the same version, it was a Disney version. On the Signalman, was it just the sound effects that you loved, or was there something about the story that touched you? There was this, it was the spectral figure of the signal man, which I think, sorry about this spoiler for any who are listening who have not mm-hmm. read it, but I think it turns out to be a specter of some sort. And he, I think he'd been run over, but there, there's a moment where he says, hello down there, hello down there. And that like mantra, that little it, 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 incantation um, still plays in my head, that hello down there, uh, because that's, that's either what the specter hollered or what somebody else hollered to the specter. But I still that that still echoes in my brain. It, you know what? I think what that did that like stories like that, appreciating that, it set up this lifelong appreciation of older horror short stories. Because I still love like Mr. James. I still love Algernon Blackwood. I still love like horror stories from a bygone era. Just something so delicious about those things um, that I, I I just got that from an early age and still love them. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's jump to teenagers. What about, um, some of the, maybe the scary books or movies or whatever, you know, media that did you get introduced to in your teenagers? Yeah. The, the main thing that happened then and, and still carries through to today is Stephen King. And I know that I am right now such a, a cliche, you know, cause how many people were introduced to horror through Stephen King? I know so many people were. So my story isn't unique, but when I was 14, basically, I thought that I was an idiot. I had no intellectual self-esteem because I'd, I'd never read a book. And that's because like every book I read kind of defeated me. I found something that made me think that I wasn't smart enough for it. 
But I finally read a book called The Tommy Knockers when I was 14. Stephen mm-hmm. King's least favorite novel, which is <laughs> um, he hates it. I think he completely disavows it. But like for me, it was just just transformative. And so I read that and finally felt for the first time smart for the first time realized because I'd loved movies since I was super little and TV since I was super little. And I'd already watched a ton of movies and TV shows, obviously, by then. But it was that book that changed me. And so I was a very slow reader, but I spent my teens and, and, and early 20s just reading Stephen King, basically. Um, I think The Stand came shortly after. Mm-hmm. That completely changed me. I read uh, Salem's Lot early on, like all those books, all those Stephen King books. They made me not only become a reader, they made me turn into a eventually a writer. And then they made me even want to teach books. And so now I'm an English teacher, a film teacher, and a creative writing teacher. I trace, nice. I trace all that back to Stephen King. Nice. Yeah. yeah. What was it about the Tommy knockers that made you feel smart? I think um, there was a, I forget, the protagonist, I think the main uh, protagonist was this woman who lived in the woods. I think, I, I don't think I've gone back to reread it um, and I need to, but I think what happens is she finds the tip of something that's buried in the forest. And I think it like gives her this gushing nosebleed. But I remember <laughs> so vividly, being in her skin i remember so vividly thinking like her and obviously you know i I forget her age but i think she was like 30s 40s she was very different than i was as a just teenage boy right i was different than this woman but what i found was was a this ability to kind of experience what she experienced so that was this exercise in empathy to feel something or sympathy to feel something the way that someone else who is not me would feel. But then at the same time, some of the emotions she was experiencing, some of the thoughts she had were similar to ones that I had had. And then there was this deep, like psychic connection that I had to her. And I, I think that that, that experience alone, beyond the fact that the Tommy knockers was spooky and about aliens and all this stuff, I think beyond the subject matter, I think just the experience of connecting with this other mind on um, this communion that I had with her, I think that was what really, really changed me and set me on a new course. Okay. Uh, let's see. Anything like that with The Stand or Salem's Lot? Big time. Big time. Especially mm. The Stand. Stu Redman. Uh, so I connected with Stu much deeper than any other character I'd ever read and and I still connect with him on a deeper level than, than other. I mean, he'd be like easily top two or three for me in the history of my reading, maybe number one. And I think the reason why is um, Brian Keene and I have talked about this a bit. Brian connected with Larry Underwood and, and I did too. But I think the thing about that is Stu was who I wanted to be. Like I always felt, cause I didn't have like at the time, I always felt like there was something lacking cause I was in this, again sorry about this like deep dive rabbit hole thing happens i mean i guess that's kind of what we're doing here right yeah yeah um i I always felt like there was something lacking because i was in this very patriarchal environment where um the 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 boys my friends they would always like take after their dads they'd parrot their dads their interests were their dads i didn't have a dad and so they were into like motorcycles and muscle cars and, and i didn't have a dad and so like he was into that. My role model is like my grandpa. I found I, I, I should have known that at the time. I didn't really realize that till years later. My grandpa was into like other things like like basketball and baseball. And, so, and we bonded through that and, you know, whatever. But at the time, I felt like I was out of place because I didn't like motorcycles. I didn't like cars. I didn't find them interesting. So um, in Stu, I felt like <sighs> Stu was like the guy 
He had that strength that I wanted to have that I felt like I lacked. He had that ability to be grounded in the face of, he was afraid, but he was able to like carry on and like get through it. And I always was afraid that I couldn't because I was afraid that I lacked that part that all my peers had. I just felt like there was some mystical Jedi training that my dad, that a dad gives a son. And I didn't have that. And, and I guess I saw in Stu somebody who I guess had that ability to be strong. And I so badly wanted to be Stu. And in a weird way, Stu became like a role model to me. It was just, I, I don't know. And I made so much more of it than probably <laughs> I needed to. But I'd always done that. I did that with Superman when I was a little kid. I just felt like if I could somehow aspire to be like Superman, I would be complete. Um, I did that with Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Um, so like for me, like stories in general, not just horror, they played such a role in, in like my finding role models and, and trying to be what I wanted to be in, you know, I was afraid I could never be those things, but I wanted to be those things so badly. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming you still participated in Halloween as a teen. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. I did. Cool, cool. Um, yeah. And I think it was, I'm trying to think how I did that. I think I'd basically just like watch horror novels and they're sorry, watch horror movies and then drive around with my friends. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing. We had a yeah. couple like local supposedly haunted places that we would visit. That was cool. Yeah. As is tradition. Yeah. Most people do, uh, you know, the costumes and trick or treating when they're kids, when you get to teens, that's when you get to start getting into possibly still costumes, but, uh, more socializing and partying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. See so, yeah, us socializing with our partying was my partying at least was, Probably because I was just always afraid to get caught. <laughs> it was always, always pretty minimal. Um, but yeah, we would definitely drive, stay out late and drive around and stuff like that. Memories of that officer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? yeah. He had more of an impact than he knew. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, any really scary dreams as a teen? Other than the one that we talked about. Hmm. Yeah, that one recurred. Um, I tell you what, here's one thing that, that, that happened a lot as a teen I, I'm a sleepwalker. All right. So I, 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 I did a lot of sleepwalking. I once woke up in the graveyard. Um, oh, huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived there from ages like two through 11 and I did wake up there one time. That was scary. I, I left the house a couple times and I remember when we moved. So when my mom got remarried and we moved to, um, the house we lived in from seventh grade through my freshman year of college, I, we lived on the lake. And that was Welcome really not a good thing for a sleepwalker, right? Um, and mm-hmm. my, my grandparents particularly were really afraid of what would happen if somebody forgot to lock the doors. Mm. And, yeah. I, and I remember being very afraid. And I think, that's, I think that fear of water, that fear of drowning, I think that really increased during that time. Because I was still sleepwalking actively. Like I remember my stepfather, with whom I didn't get along, I remember him like yelling at me one night because I <laughs> he woke up and I was I had mistaken him for the restroom and I was getting ready to take a leak off. <laughs> and he's You'd like, be surprised hey, hey. how common that is. I have a couple of friends who have actually done that. And... Is that right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And the only yeah. the only d- disappointing part is that I didn't. I looking back, <laughs> I wish I would have. He really deserved to be mictorated. Um, total jerk, and I wish I would have, you know, gone through with it. But he caught me before the stream was in mid-flow. Uh, yeah, that would have been perfect excuse too. Let's say, what I was sleepwalking. I know I should have uh, used it, right? I should have just I used that to do it, you know, whenever I wanted. The next night you do it again, completely in, on purpose. Exactly. Exactly. Still, sleepwalking. still sleepwalking. <laughs> As you're doing it, talking. I am sleepwalking right now. No control over it. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> anytime you were uh, actually terrified of something in real life as a teen. Yeah. Oh man. Um, I wish I could come up with more things that are lighthearted here. I keep like, I feel like I keep getting too serious. No, um, I, that's part of the call is we have the, the highs and the lows. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So the thing that I, as a teen, well, okay. I mean, I think I was afraid of, I mean, I think I was afraid of rejection a lot as a teen. Okay. Um, I, it was funny. I think like probably my peers perceived me as being fairly uh, self-confident or whatever, but I wasn't. I was just painfully inside. I was painfully shy and, and af- afraid of rejection. I had a, a really horrible, nearly um, life-ending car crash when I was 18. And so that yeah. definitely, that their fear was born then. So I was afraid of car crashes and still am, but now mainly f- for, my, for my family. Of course. My son is 17 and he's a driver now. Um, and my daughter is one of my daughters is 15 and she's getting ready to drive. And that was born. That fear of car crashes was born when I had one and, and still mm-hmm. to today, my mm-hmm. son yesterday, we were going to meet somewhere. And then as I was sitting there waiting for him, I heard a, 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 an ambulance. I saw an ambulance go by and then I heard it. And I'm just, every time I hear an ambulance now or, or, you know, whatever I see flashing lights, I'm so afraid that it's one of my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because of that terrible car crash I had that senior year. Yeah. Yeah, you you brought up the fear of rejection part. Was it was that related somehow, um, or did no, you? No, that shift? was totally tan. I just shifted. Yeah, that's okay. totally. Uh, yeah, because I was trying to come up with something a little less depressing, um, <laughs> <laughs> and that was my no. less depressing. And it's probably more depressing right. actually and sadder. <laughs> no, just clarifying. Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. funny question about the uh, fear about your kids now. So, were you the one that taught your kids to drive, or your wife? Um, mostly me, my wife. Really? Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, and my, my wife is, she's, she's done that. She's taking them out and stuff. But I think that I was the first one with each one to take them out. The reason that I asked that is because I'm just picturing you in the, in the passenger seat. Yeah. <laughs> while your kids are driving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's funny. It's like, I feel like if I'm with them, I'm a little less afraid, hmm. but if I'm not there, I, I think most of us have a fear of having no control. Mm, and yeah. I think that the closer we are to control, maybe well, that's kind of where I was going with that yeah. is because as the passenger, you don't have the control and you're in the car with them as they're, you know, jerking forward or making awkward turns and things like that. Like, right. <laughs> Cause I remember mm-hmm. the first time I'd learned how to drive a car. The first time I tried to take a turn. Cause you know, there's, if you, if you just hit the gas and let the wheel kind of straighten itself back out, it, it'll kind of take itself where it needs to go. Yeah. Mm. But you don't know that the first time you do it. Right. So you oversteer, overcompensate. Right. You're trying to physically steer it as you're, or, or you're hitting the gas too hard. Like there's that whole, that whole experience. And I could just see as a passenger, I, I think I'm all right because I don't have the fear that you have, but I could also see being in your shoes. Like I probably would have been scared. Yeah. But if you didn't, Hey, that's fine. Well, I think that you're the problem is you're approaching it from a from from logic. <laughs> you're, 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 Stop using that logic stuff. Yeah, I mean you're exactly right. I have no control, but I feel like I do. Like yeah. <laughs> in my brain, I delude myself into thinking it's the same thing. Like so, like in the ocean, I'm terrified mm. of the ocean. Um, if my wife, so one day over spring break, I took one daughter to Hollywood Studios in, in Disney. And my wife took my other daughter um, and my son and his girlfriend to the ocean. 
And um, I wasn't really afraid because I was distracted and I couldn't see it. It, it. But when I'm there at the ocean with my family, I'm terrified if I'm like 20 feet away because I'm sure a shark is going to get them or a riptide is going to pull them out. If I'm right by them or near them, like like say five feet away, I feel like completely at ease or relatively mm-hmm. at ease, even though what am I going to do if there's like a tiger yeah. shark? What am I going to just beat it up? I mean, if what am I going to do if there's a shark attack or if, if, you know, so like even though I really don't have control, the closer I am to it, the more like at ease I feel. So it's a totally irrational mm-hmm. like dichotomy. But, but it's one that I kind of cling to. I like lean into it just so I cannot feel the terror as much. Do you, yeah. do you feel yourself uh, having separation anxiety? Oh my gosh. So much. That's like so bad. It's so bad. This coming weekend, I'm away from my family maybe once a year or twice a year and never more than a couple nights. But um, I'm going to go to AuthorCon in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I am just like, on one hand, I like everything about it will be great. Like uh, it, my wife is actually going with me this time. We never leave our kids alone. This is like probably our, my son's 17. Since we have kids, we've never been apart from them for more than two nights. And that's like once a year at most. So we, we're almost never apart from our kids. So this is one of those rare times that we're apart from our kids. Um, we'll be driving to AuthorCon and my wife is going to be flying back like on Saturday. So she's only going to be apart from them for like 46 hours. Mm-hmm. I'll be apart from them for a little longer, more like whatever, 60 some hours. But, but anyway, I'm like on what everything about it will be fun. I'll like the drive with my wife. I'll love being there at AuthorCon with, with fellow authors and, and readers and all the people there. It'll all be awesome. Like objectively, I know that it'll be fun. It'll be cool. And, and you'll I'll like be, the fact that she's going to be back with them within 48 hours. I do. I do very much. <laughs> that's like, that's <laughs> saving grace. But uh, underneath all that is this terrible dread and sick regret and just horror at being apart from my kids. Like mm-hmm. I feel like a failure as a dad. I feel like I'm negligent. I feel like, and and the worst part is my son, I didn't know this when I scheduled this, but my son's first baseball games, he has a doubleheader on that Saturday. So I will miss that. And I never miss my kids stuff. Like I'm always there for that. I'm going to miss that. So I just feel like I I feel like someday in therapy, he's going to be talking about when his dad (laughs) games and it was, and he looked in the stands and I wasn't there. It's like, you know, like Mm -hmm. train to Busan. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that movie? Chris. Uh, yes, it's been a while, but yeah, there's, you know, that's, that seems to be like a recurring theme in Korean horror movies I've seen, like Train to Busan, uh, The Host. There, there's always like a struggling yeah. parent who tries, who strives to achieve to be the best parent ever, yes. and they just can't quite do it. Yes, The Host too. Also, that's so true. That's so good. Train to Busan is like so, and, and I hope I'm better than that dad was at the beginning. That's one of my favorite yeah. movies, and because of its heart, it's just such a heartfelt, beautiful movie. But yeah, that's what I feel like. I feel like that 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 absentee dad, and I, it's just crushing me. Like I'm like borderline tears, like constantly, and have been for like two weeks thinking about it, which is just stupid. My son, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. I, yeah. I know yeah. that, like objectively, but I I'm not fine. So right. yeah, I'm struggling. That was an interesting twist because I thought you were going to go with the separation anxiety because of lack of control. I wasn't expecting it to go to the uh, issues of, you know, failure as a dad part of it, but I can see that as well. Uh, The only thing I would comment there is that, you know, the fact that you're concerned about it is probably indicative of the fact that you're not going to have to worry about that because you'll find other ways to make sure that that 
it doesn't happen. Um, and I think going, touching on the, the, you know, the Korean, uh, movies fears, the fact that you're afraid of it doesn't change, even if you are successful at avoiding it. Like I think Mm -hmm. in the movies, yeah, sometimes there are people who are failures, but even the ones who aren't failures, the fact that they're afraid of being the failure doesn't change. So the fail, the fear is still there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah, a couple of, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like a, you know, a couple of things on the last three topics we've been on, uh, but you know, going from the, uh, the swimming incident where you were, you were close. So it was reassuring to the fear of being a failure as a dad. It's funny how like you have those subconscious cues and fears of, of this thing that terrifies you and you, you know you have no control over it, but your subconscious brain is still, it still has that, uh, that default native fear that you can't control. And then your mind just kind of tries to find little footholds or latches that you can cling on to as, as a safety device. Like, oh, I'm, I'm less than five feet away from the child now, so everything's fine. Everything's fine. Which is the nature just, of fear. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. I think you described the mental mechanism like pretty much precisely. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, yeah. And I think that like objectively, I think I'm a, I'm, I think I'm a decent father. Um, but I just, just at the same time, I am so afraid of falling short and falling shy and failing my kids. I just, so which as I, I said is probably why you won't. Yeah, I, I, I hope that's yeah. right. I, I hope that's right. And I, yeah, like Steve said, the fact that you fear it means that your your mind is in the right place. Well, right? yeah, I, I, I think so. And also, it's funny, like I hear people talk about like so many people say, like, I don't want to pe- not everybody has to be a parent, right? The, the, some people want to be and some people don't want to be some people are whatever. I, I, you don't have to have, be a parent to, to have a complete life, anything like that. I'm not like generalizing. But it's funny, like sometimes I'll, I'll hear people say, I don't want to be be a parent, and then and then they'll go on to articulate some really perceptive, like heartfelt reason. And there's there's a part of me that thinks to myself, that's a reason why you would probably be a good parent. Like I respect right. the mm-hmm. fact that you don't want to be totally cool, completely fine. But because you're thinking that way, you'd probably be a better parent than a lot of people who are, right. because you're like thinking about that and aware of that and sensitive to that. When I, I sometimes the best parents are people who are never parents. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. When I was in high school, uh, I also had not the best childhood. And I remember being in my high school counselor's office at one point. I don't remember why I was there, but I just remember being really depressed at one particular moment and saying to her that I had this fear that I would always feel broken. And she said that, uh, that she was pretty sure that I would be fine. And I asked her why. And her answer was that because I could tell that something was wrong. And she said in her experience, uh, the difference between the kids who turn out all right and the ones that don't are that the ones who don't, don't realize that there's anything wrong. That's so mm-hmm. good. That's and, so profound. Like simple, yeah, but profound. Is. You mind if I steal that? Like Go right ahead. <laughs> I, yeah. So I told you I'm a teacher. And so I'll be with a hundred and oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> on Monday. And I think that's something that they need to hear. I think they need to hear because you know all it's it's amazing like every kid that i wa- that i encounter has a problem right like they but they feel like their problems are immaterial or they don't matter or they're they're wrong or broken or whatever and um i think that like knowing or hearing that their awareness that something is is wrong 
is actually could actually be a positive thing, right? right if looked at in a certain way. Potential tie into uh, a question here: When was there ever a time in your teens where you felt completely safe or calm or at bliss? Hmm. When I was a senior, I told you about the car crash I had. Um, it was it was right before the car crash. My senior year in basketball had just ended, and that was a big part of my 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 high school years was playing basketball. My my career just ended. I didn't know what to do after school. No more practice, all that stuff. And this English teacher opened the writing lab after school for like kids who wanted to do homework. I just ventured down there because I was kind of aimless after a week of no practices, and I just sat down and I on a whim started to write. And I start because I was reading a lot of Stephen King. I started to write a really bad imitation of a Stephen King novel, <laughs> and like it, it immediately felt good, even though I, I I sucked at it. I wasn't a good writer, obviously, at that time. I was terrible at it, but it felt good, and it felt fulfilling, and it made me feel more whole and more and more, and it felt real. It felt true. It felt empowering, and um, that's probably the most secure I ever felt as a teenager was then. And then after I had my crash. Because I just started to do that. And then like a week later, I had my car crash. And then I was like, I, it was a bad one. So I had like amnesia. I, I was borderline in a coma. I lost like a month of for my life that I'll never get back like memory wise. Mm. So I was home from school for a long time. But my computer teacher um, back from seventh grade brought this ancient Mac out to my house so I could continue my book because he'd heard from that teacher that I was writing. And so he brought it to me and then I would write. And for, for hours and hours and hours while I was home from school, instead of doing homework, <laughs> I was working on this book. And so it was like a solace to me after that car accident too. And, and it's, it's been that for me ever since. It's been like this shelter, this safe place, this calming agent in my life. And, and I just, and that's why I tell so two of the classes I teach are creative writing and advanced creative writing. And I tell my, all my kids this, I'm like, the moment you put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, you are doing something good. You are expressing. And, and I think the same thing applies to, you know, putting brush to canvas or, or putting, you know, foot to floor in a dance or, or fingers to guitar. Get out of yourself. I feel like any mm -hmm. art is therapeutic. Any art is expressive and it's good. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your emotions to do that. So I really feel like art is a haven for us and it's so important for us because that's what it was to me and that's what it continues to be to me. It's interesting because what I was, my first thought was that there are, I thought there are a lot of people out there who don't support art who need to hear that. Oh my gosh. And my second thought was that how those people would instead say, that you need to be doing something else, whether it's, you know, woodworking or working on a farm or, you know, physical activity. And then my third thought was that in a way it's kind of the same thing. This is exactly. still the idea that of doing something, which is the other thing that a lot of people who don't support arts would say is, you know, get up and go do something. Yeah. And so maybe the more accurate thing to say there would be that maybe the people who don't support art just need to understand that it's getting up and doing something, even if that thing that they're doing isn't something that you personally connect with. That's wonderfully said. And and and, mm -hmm. and in that the other side of that coin is I would also say, and you you kind of I think alluded to this too, there is art in what they're doing, even if they're not really appreciating right. or understanding. Like you mentioned the woodworking, you mentioned um agriculture, like as a teacher, so much of teaching is art. 
right? It's not science. It's not an equation. So much of being a good teacher is art. I think there is so much art in in whatever people do. There's there's an art to what you're doing right now, even if you don't look at it as art. You right. know, the way that you are, like that's that is an arguably incredible. everything is art. Well, you know, yeah. to a degree, yes, right. But 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 those who don't appreciate art would completely, you know, rebel at that concept. They 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 right. view art as something different. Art is something that's worthless and, and and not productive, you know, in a responsible way. And that's probably why they don't appreciate art or books or whatever it is. That's why they want to attack art. That's why they want to defund art and, and attack libraries and all that other crap. Because it's they only art if it in, in, if it engages emotions. Otherwise, it's just work. <laughs> I love yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's jump into adult years. Uh, becoming an adult. What are some of the scary stories or books or movies that have Im- Im- influenced you or, or impacted you as an adult? Mm, man, um, I know probably hard to yeah, narrow should, the list, but usually the yeah, first two or three so many things yeah, that come to mind. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be hard. Yeah, I should. I should just like work from. Well, let me just tell you some movies that pop out when I think of scariest movies. All right, movies that stick with me. Lake Mungo. That's a good one. Oh my yeah. gosh, Lake Mungo deserve it. Uh, it deserves to be on that top, that the highest echelon, in my opinion. Like up there with Exorcist, Jaws, whatever the thing, whatever like canonical horror works exist. I think Lake Mungo should be up there. It is just so brilliant. And I'm rewatching it right now. I, I saw it for the first time, like maybe a year and a half ago. And it legit gave me nightmares. And like, mm. like really, like I would wake up in the middle of the night terrified. There's this face, there's this image you see in Lake Mungo. It, it like comes out of the dark near the end of it. And mm-hmm. it, it just so horrified me. And, and, and I'm still afraid of it. I'll wake up in the middle of the night, like cowering in my covers. And, um, and I, for a long time, I didn't rewatch it. I only saw it that once. And I'm just now starting to rewatch it with my middle child, who's my horror fan. She just nice. loves, she loves horror, and we watch and rewatch it together. It's even better than I remembered. Like now, I can go back and not just experience it as a viewer. Now I can look at it as a piece of art, like look at it as a craftsman, and really appreciate how it's put together. And we're only like a third of the way through, and I'm just my mind is blown at how good it is. So I think Lake Mungo is like a top five horror film of all time. Um, and like nobody's seen it except for people who are in the horror, like really, really into horror. They've seen it, but I think that lay people probably have not. And I'd love that to change. Have you guys seen it? Uh, should I? I've seen it, uh, only once it does deserve a rewatch. I just remember it being really good. It was, it seemed like kind of like, okay, I'll throw this on in the background, indie horror film, whatever, when I first started it. But of course, like 10 minutes in, it drew me in and I was hooked till the very end with the twist and it was awesome. Yeah. Plus, I just love um, it was Ashley Lynn Carter because she was also in The Woman. Is is that right? Yeah, and I think um, Sean Bridgers, the the father from The Woman, was in Jug. I'm thinking of Jug Face. Okay, but Lake Mungo was also good. That that was <laughs> the one with the twist with the lake and the girl who was missing. Jug yeah. Face is one that I've missed, by the way. And we all have like uh, those gaps. Like I yeah. like for mm-hmm. me, like Boy's Life, the Robert McCammon book. Everybody like mm-hmm. recoils in horror that I haven't read that, but I still haven't read it yet. And I know I need to <laughs> on the list, as they say. Yes, 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 yes. When you mentioned the face or the image coming out of the dark, my first thought was the cistern. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Right? yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my gosh. Hey, oh my. it's all connected. It is mm. totally connected. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, let's jump to some of these other questions here. Um, 
you do participate in Halloween as an adult. Uh, yes. Now I get to, and I get to through my children, which is such a blast. Um, my, uh, yeah. So each one is in a different stage. Son is 17. One daughter's 15. The other daughter's 12. My daughter who's 12 still does trick or treat, um, which is awesome. I actually, my 15 year old daughter did trick or treating this year, which I think is great. I think that that's the, th- I, I think, th- okay. So here's something that the three of us know. All right. Here's something we know that, that I think almost all humans forget. There is no expiration date for Halloween. There is no expiration date for feeling the magic of Halloween or for feeling the magic of storytelling, feeling the magic of just of, mm-hmm. of magic, right? I think that I think that we eventually realize that, but I think that there's always th- th- that societal lie that that maybe implied pressure from different quarters, often from peers probably, that wants to tell us the lie that there is an expiration date right? That we can't appreciate it anymore, or that if we do this, we're lame or whatever. Um, and so hopefully my enthusiasm will mitigate that at least somewhat for my kids because, cause you know, they, they see me being excited about Halloween. They see me going to horror conventions where people cosplay. I love that. I love that. I love that so much. It's like things they call childlike, um, you know, e- either a childlike is not disparaging, um, ever like it's a really positive thing, or mm-hmm. what we call childlike is just being like true and genuinely loving things and being open and appreciative of things that are just awesome, right? Yep, it's funny you almost said verbatim something that uh, I cover. It, it, my my book doesn't come up often in these calls, but the book that I wrote talks about almost ninety of the tools that I've learned through therapy and recovery and twelve step stuff. Yeah. And one of the the phrases that we learn is childlike is not childish. Well, that's beautiful. Okay, I'm gonna hold on. I'm gonna you, you can keep talking, but I'm gonna put that on my phone. <laughs> that is so good. That is so good. You know, there there as you kind of talked about, you know, the magic and that there are parents or people who would shame a child for participating in certain things or doing certain things, not even necessarily related to Hall- uh, to Halloween. You know that, but in defense of that, that childlike, childlike is not childish. That there are negative things that we do associate with being a child, like being selfish or sure. temper tantrums and things like that. And if you lump in the awe of you know, that children can feel in certain situations, you know that's not necessarily. It's not necessarily necessary. I mean, there's there's a whole conversation that can be had about that. That is a topic in and of itself. I just wanted to throw that out that out there while while it was appropriate to to have that conversation. <laughs> no, it's, it's marvelous. No, it's yeah. so true. I'm going to use that. I mean, I'm absolutely. I'm stealing that with my students tomorrow because they need to hear that. They're right at that stage where it reminds me is silly sounding, maybe, but it reminds me of a Polar Express. How um, mm-hmm. they can only hear the ringing of the bell. And there's a point where, in the book at least, where the sister, the little sister of the main character, stops hearing it, but the main mm-hmm. character keeps hearing it. And I think that, yeah, I mean, we can always get it back, I think. But I think that those teenage years are often the years that that bell ceases to sound because we feel like it should cease to sound or there's something wrong with hearing it. But like you said, childlike is beautiful. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Uh, any really scary dreams as an adult? I have dreams where like my family isn't my family. 
Like mm. I, um, yeah, like, or, or, or they, or my kids don't exist somehow. Like I made that. I, I heard, um, y'all know Michael Schur. He's the creator of, he created Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place. And he also helped write for The Office. He's cousin Moe's on The Office. Um, but he, he was talking about this the other night in the podcast, talking about sliding doors moments and talking about how like this one little, because basically he says he's lucky, right? People always want to attribute his success to, to skill and merit. And he says so much of it is luck. And so much of the things that happen to people is luck, good luck or bad luck. And, um, and you know, that thought, while I think very true, often like informs my nightmares. And I think of like, what would have happened had I, I mean, just think about this. Like if I had gone this way rather than this way, what if I had, here's a silly, cheesy example, but my, uh, I always had this fear of being in a play and um, like yeah. on stage because I'm not an actor. Like I, I honestly, that's not self-deprecation. I suck at acting. I cannot <laughs> deliver lines well at all. And so anytime something, I'm afraid of it, but it's not bad for me. I want to like conquer it, which is just stupid and stubborn some of the time. Sometimes it's good. Um, so I always kind of said to myself, if ever I get asked to be in a play, I'm going to say yes. So when I was 26, I got asked to be in a play for this little community theater thing. And I'm like, here it is. Here's the moment. Like, you're afraid of it. You better do it. So I, I kept saying, no, no, no. Finally, I said yes. And the part was for Prince Charming in Cinderella. And, um, and I had to sing and all this stuff. And I remember going to my first practice. I remember vividly hearing this woman singing from down the hallway. You can guess who this became. That ultimately was Cinderella. That ultimately became my wife. Oh, and and so it's uh, the like the cheesiest romantic comedy, whatever. Meet cute. <laughs> well, then it's a good thing you uh, attended the play, right? But yeah. I have dreams about not. I have really? dreams about saying uh, no. Okay. About what would like what if? What if? Yeah. Because I I was like ninety percent not going to. So do I'm going to drop another one on you uh, yeah. if you haven't heard this one before. Yeah. Uh, I've always liked this little symbol it's a saying but you can visualize it as a symbol of luck equals preparation plus opportunity yeah. mm -hmm. and i love that because if you think about it if you're prepared but you never have an opportunity yep you're not lucky if you have an opportunity but you're not prepared you can't capitalize on it yes if you never have either then of course you're not lucky either but <laughs> it, you know <laughs> But, you know, it's it's having both. And in your case, maybe you weren't prepared as as a stage performer, but you were prepared to take the challenge. Yeah. And then yeah. you had the opportunity. That's true. That is very true. I, I think I think that's very true. I, I think that what's that quote is true. And it's also like inspiring um, to me and probably to, to many others. I, I just think also the part of it that's hard is at least for me, the part that hard is not necessarily the preparation. It's the other part, the part that yeah. I don't control. Yeah. That's it's super hard for me to accept that I don't control it. Yeah. And that's something I battle with my whole life. Like, like just understanding and under the, the accepting that that's not, that there's part of it that's not in my hands. Cause I, I like that control and I'm like, I can, I, I will prepare. Like I will, I will work hard. That's never at issue. Um, but that other part about me, having that opportunity um, or luck or whatever. Um, I think that's really difficult for me to accept that it's not true. But the point is that you have to focus on what you can focus on, because if 100%. you say I can't control the opportunity, so I'm not going to work on the preparation then. Right. And I guess some people do that, right? I mean, I guess some do. people don't, don't prepare, which is, I guess like for me and my personality, I guess that, that part is like frustrating because I'm like, you know, it, it's cause it's so, there's so much that you don't control. Why wouldn't you control what you can? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that, so for me, it's like just, 
the way this is the way <laughs> to quote the Mandalorian. Yep. <laughs> it's like I will absolutely work my ass off. Um, and I do, right? I, I that's the one thing, like, and, and I hope that doesn't sound self-aggrandizing, but I do. Yeah. I work so hard and always will. But but yeah, it's just hard for me to to accept that I can't control the other part. But you're right. I mean, I think that's right. We control what we can control. And then and then because people who don't, and maybe I'm sounding unsympathetic here, but people who don't control that hard working part. I don't know. I guess I'm not going to say anything about that because <laughs> I don't want to sound like a bad person. <laughs> it's, it's just not a good situation to be in. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, and by the way, and I want to make sure I am sympathetic because there are people who can't control certain things because yeah. like the hard work part, there are people who have crappy circumstances. There are people who have sickness yeah. and have to take care of loved ones with sickness and people who deal with all sorts of other things that aren't in their control, you know, and it sounds like I would be throwing shade at them. I'm not at all. Like I completely, and, and I'm not one of those people that says, well, you've got to write 10 pages a day or you suck. You're not, you're <laughs> not right. That kind of thinking is so, uh, you know, that that's just so callous because well, people, what I would say to that yeah. is what we have to prepare for is different for each of us exactly because some people have so there's situations like you you can't understand somebody's life until you walk in their shoes some people have such difficult situations and they cannot write even one page a day right. because of their situations and i think that being sensitive to that is important too and, right? and that's what i mean that preparing for yes. what they have to deal with tomorrow yes. maybe not you know being part of a hollywood movie but it's still worth doing, you know, you still right. have to prepare for what you have to face tomorrow. I mean, yes. So very well said, very well said. Has there any been anything in your adult life, uh, that has made you feel completely calm or safe or at bliss? Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds so cheesy. Uh, but my, um, just being with my wife and kids, just having them with me. Um, it sounds like I'm Linus with a security security blanket. <laughs> um, but I just uh, feel so whole and so calm and so happy. Um, it's just, it just really is a wonderful feeling. And, um, you know, one thing it's funny as a teacher, like not only am I, so I, I love teaching as a profession. It's very difficult, but I love it. But uh, my kids go to my school. So like right now, my, uh, my sixth grader, she's not with me yet. It's a seven through 12. So, so next year will be the first year that they're all three there at the school with me. The only year they'll be there with me because my son will be a senior next year. Right. But um, my son is in my last hour class. He's in my eighth hour class. I love having him with me. It just like makes that class all the more special. My freshman daughter, she will ride to school with me and having her there in my classroom before school starts, that will just start the day with a sense of peace. And I think that's a real luxury that most people don't have. Like how many people get to go to school with their kids? Um, so it just really does. I just love being around them. I mean, I'm sure sometimes the stereotypical feelings of teen angst rise up. They're like, dad, you're annoying. Dad, get away from me, all that stuff. <laughs> but like for me, for me, always having that, just having that them near me is just so special and awesome. Right. So the next two questions I'm going to ask you at the same time, because it could be the same answer for both questions or it could be two different answers. Yeah. If you had to pick a favorite movie and what movie have you watched more times than any other? Yeah. So my favorites are, I can give you my top four. Um, and, and I'm going to cheat. I'm going to cheat because like two of them are groups of movies. Okay. So the number one of on my top four is probably a new hope and empire strikes back. Those two together. 
Um, no shade okay. toward the other Star Wars movies, but those are my two favorites. And then like second, although some days it's almost first would be the Lord of the Rings trilogy because mm-hmm. I just love those so passionately. And then third would probably be Jaws and fourth would be Shawshank Redemption. Ah, uh, the shank. Yeah, I just, those are my, uh, those are the ones I go back to the, again and again. Shawshank's the one I've seen the least of the four, although I've probably still seen that, I don't know, five to 10 times. But like Jaws, I teach every semester, multiple times a semester to my film lit class. So I've probably seen that one 60, 80, 100 and sometimes. So that's, a, I, and that never gets old. And then probably the one I've seen the most of would be Star Wars, A New Hope and, and Empire Strikes Back. Because that one, my... My kids have all loved it different times, and my youngest is just addicted to my 12-year-old. I, I the, the first movie I ever saw was Star Wars when I was three years old. I saw A New Hope, and uh, I just I will never get tired of them. I, they will never cease being magical to me. All right, so just make a quick note, movie. So New Hope was the first one that you saw. What what about these two movies? Like, Is there a theme that you like? Is there a scene that you like? I've been thinking about this in relation to John Williams so much lately because john williams like i get choked up because john williams Mm -hmm. the composer has like enhanced my life every year of my life every month of my life almost on a daily basis he makes my life better and i just have so much of a debt to him could never repay and i just and he's 90 and i feel so much pressure to write a letter to him but a i feel like i'll be ineloquent even though i'm a writer and I, I won't properly capture what I feel for him. And then B, I'm afraid that he'd never see it, but I still want to write it and I should write it and I will write it at some point. So all that points me to the scene from A New Hope from Star Wars where um, the binary sunset scene where Luke Skywalker looks out at the horizon, um, like longingly and yearningly. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, yeah, yeah the, the mu- John Williams's music at that moment. Mark Hamill's acting. I'd love to tell Mark Hamill someday. In fact, I have on Twitter and he's like liked it, which makes me so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy that at least at least he knows. At least he knows that was important to me, right? But like that, that moment for me, I just keep going back to that because what that represents, it sounds so, you know, whatever, but it's it's hope. Like, you know, the, the idea that there is something more, no matter how bad our circumstances are, that hope still, you know, is present. Um, you know, when Luke is looking out at that horizon and we see the sun in his eyes, you know, I just love that. Cause I, when I first saw that, when I was three, that's in this dark period that we started with when my mom and biological dad were still together and my childhood was one long horror show and, and miserable and scary, but I felt Luke, like I felt him in that moment. I was Luke looking out at that sunset. I didn't know I was three. What did I know? Right. I was barely potty trained, but at some, on some level, I recognized that there was more and I start and I felt hope from that. And I would always go back to that moment. And every time I see it, it fills me not only with longing, but with this edifying surety, this, this certainty that there is something more, that there is something better. One second. I want to write one more thing. Eric. So, thank you for indulging me, by the way, and sorry for being so ridiculous and flaky. But I really no, is is as earnest and all as, and ridiculous <laughs> as all this sounds. I do believe it, right? I know that there are mm-hmm. people who li- listen to this and roll their eyes and like, oh, dude, that's so cringe. And you know what? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, honestly, to those people, you, you know, you do you. You live your life how you want to, but. I'm going to be excited about things. You know, I'm going to feel things as I'm going to get choked up on a daily basis um, because I just, I don't know. I think, I think it's, you know, emotions are good things to have and, and, and like, you know, feeling those with other people's or other people. That's a good thing to do. 
I don't know if no, you not, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say not, not at all. Thank you for this actually, because as uh, someone who may or may not have uh, recently intermittently lost sight of that thing, they call hope. It's good to hear someone, uh, you know, describe it and, and kind of uh, reintroduce the, the concept that is hope, <laughs> you know, in, in a visual and uh, literary uh, sense yeah. in, in a way. You're right. Yeah. That, that, Look, that Luke gave out onto the the twin sunsets. Is, it is hope, you know. It's you lose sight of it sometimes, and it's good to be reintroduced to the concept of hope now and then. Yeah. Well, thank you. What I was going to say is that, and I don't know how much of this you and I had discussed offhand, but or offline. But so the short term goal that we have with these episodes is obviously anybody who's interested in your work can come hear what we're talking about and learn get to know you a little bit better and the things that have informed your life and. and you know, help them uh, connect with you and enhance their fandom. Um, but then the long-term goal is that however many people we get to talk to while we're doing this, the more people we talk to, maybe we can start identifying some common trends uh, that inform the horror community as a whole. And we're not expecting everybody to fall into one bucket, but maybe that there might be a couple buckets that people fall into. And even though like you say, okay, other people might hear this and go, okay, that's cringe. I think the common thread that, you know, if you listen to a lot of the the calls that we've done, there are people who are feeling the same excitement about the different things, which are the different buckets they would, that they would fall into. And yeah, maybe your bucket isn't the same as the next person's, but it's the enjoyment part. That's the important part. And I think anybody who, you know, loses sight of that doesn't really understand what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's that's awesome, by the way. I love your. <laughs> I love, by the way, you two are, are are awesome to talk to. Um, I love the name of your podcast. I love that so much. Um, it's just so like I, I it literally made me smile. <laughs> like when I was like, you know, going to the, you know, g- linking up with you all. But then also, I love those short and long term goals. I think that's yeah. marvelous. Yeah, it's yeah. so cool. Mm-hmm. Do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? Cannibalism, occult, metaphysical. Well, what I love is that I, I love the lack of um, consistency. The only thing consistent is the variety. And I love that. See, I'm somebody who feels that horror can be, and, and I know that like a cynic's uh, view of what I'm going to say is, well, then anything can be horror. Then we can't define it and you suck and whatever. But like, I feel like the horror umbrella is so vast. I feel like it's so much broader than what people want it to be. I guess you'll never find me saying to somebody, well, that's not horror. That's not technically a horror novel because, you know, I think what horrifies us and what brings us horror is different for anybody. And I think horror should reflect that diversity of the human experience. So like for me, I love, you know, I'm just looking at my, at my bookshelf here. So I feel like horror um, can be, I love Western horror. I love um, like, you know, uh, uh, cosmic horror. I love quiet mm-hmm. horror. I love, I love splattery horror. Like Let me ro- stop you for a second. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm hearing though, is that whatever the common thread is, it's yeah. not, it's not subgenre. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So could the common thread be quality writing? We've gotten that one a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it kind of simplifies it, but you know, I think it is. I think it is. And I think all of it, like it all makes me feel something. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. All right. Mm-hmm. And that like, think about that situation, like a boy and his father, you know, alone in this 
post-apocalyptic landscape with cannibals around and whatever, like most, I, I think librarians and bookstore owners would not shelve that as horror. Like for me, that's horror. That is yeah. so horrifying and terrifying and spine tingling. That's horror to me. There's another one. There's a, a play called the homecoming by Harold Pinter, which probably is a little more obscure uh, for most people. But um, in that one, there is this horror of like betrayal. All right. That runs through it. Like the, one of the opening scenes, this young, it's, it's his father and his um, adult sons and one adult son. I think it's the youngest adult son gets married to a woman and then brings her home to meet his father and the brothers. And when they introduce the father says, Oh, good to meet you to the woman, to the bride and says, well, let's try her out and starts making out with her in front of, mm -hmm. in front of the, the, his son and you know, the, the bride's husband. And I remember reading that and thinking like having my stomach turned, like I was nauseated. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is the most horrifying thing. This is awful. Like, so for me, that's a horror story that is yeah. so visceral and awful and terrible and so well done. Because I, and I think that's what he was going for. I think that's what Harold Pinter was trying to accomplish. Yeah, I even with what you just said there, I think that ties in with the the themes that have been coming up multiple times in this call. So this is normally the point where we would summarize the topics that have come up in the call and then ask like two or three follow up questions after that. So the things that I'm hearing coming up multiple times, basically, I would summarize as interpersonal connection. Yeah. Like you talked about Anthony Dick or the anthology with Dickens, the signal man, hello down there, um, feeling safe with your grandparents and your aunts. Um, the character in Tommy knockers, the phrase you used was a psychic connection. Yeah. Um, you said mm -hmm. you connected with the character of Stu Redmond. Um, I, I think I pronounced that correctly or Redmond. Yeah. 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 Separation anxiety, you know, this, this fear, the separation of the, the, the connection that you have with your kids. Yeah. And, so the natural follow-up question to that would be, do you, can you think of a reason why that might be important to you? Yeah. That topic. Yeah. Um, that's wow. Yeah. I think that's, that's very true. Everything you just said is true. I just think that, you know, when we, when we love things, it's very scary to think about losing them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's just a very frightening thing. Um, I, I feel like, yeah, and I feel like that's like the, the deeper, the deeper we love something or someone, the more vulnerable we, we become. Um, and it's like, we know that emotional pain is then amplified. And, and I've read a lot, like a, a lot of these creative writing books out of which I teach, like I teach out of all, I teach from all sorts of things. But one thing that comes up again and again, they say that like when they do study, you know, the, the, the all encompassing day, but when they do studies of like punishments and this and that and fears, they said that the worst punishment that people can get is, is a solitary confinement. And they said that the, 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 the thing that really will like make people like lose their hold on reality is that is like, and that's, you know, that goes back to like sensory deprivation is like cutting off all emotional or any connection with somebody else. And so I must, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure what, what that stems from with me particularly. I know that when I was little, I know when there was that custody battle that like I told you, my dad took me away from my mom for a while. And, um, I remember and he, he just fed me candy bars for a couple of weeks. And basically I lived in the car mostly by myself. So I don't know if it has to do with that, that I, that I lost my mom for that short time and I was afraid of it. 
than I was mm-hmm. ever after afraid of it. I don't know if it's just something that was like in me, like I'm hardwired that way to be afraid of losing what I love. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, but I think it's a fascinating thing to examine. But I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think that that's that fear of losing that which I love. I think that's that's definitely deep down in me. I think it's really interesting that what you just said about that feeling of losing that relationship with your mom for three weeks, because what I was going to say is often we want what we cannot have. And what you might've been missing was the relationship with your father. Mm. And for you to flip that around and say, no, maybe it was that I missed my mom. That's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. And I think it's probably both because you mentioned the father thing. Like I, I so badly, man, even though like it was a horror story, like, like I, and, and I know we don't have time and I won't, I won't, you know, get into this now, but there's so much more there, so much just stuff straight out of a horror novel. Um, but the thing is, is that even so, I yearned for that connection with my father, no matter what. I just yearned for it. And you know, the funny the the show Cobra Kai does, and I and I know it's like it's like teenage melodrama and <laughs> all this stuff. They do a really good job with that. They do a really good job with the pain and father son relationships between Johnny and and Robbie between Miguel and his father, Miguel and Johnny and all that stuff. They do a really good job examining that. Um, and I, I wish I, I, I was at a convention with William Zabka um, and I didn't go up to him and I just, it kills me that I didn't. I wish, I hope I get to someday to thank him, the Johnny Lawrence character for that, for all that. But yeah, I think it's both. I think it's that yearning for connection with my dad and the fear of losing my connection with my mom. So the natural follow-up question to that then is why why horror because couldn't you explore those things in other genres i think i could i think that here we probably get into like the shaping like the the nurture part where my mom really really kind of honed my lens into a horror lens um you know when we would you know i remember one time that frog and toad all right frog and toad i don't know if you know those kids books by arnold lobel i think is his name um they're just an awesome kids book series. They're like four of them, five stories each. So 20 stories total. The one that she would read the most often, there's only one horror story in all of them really. And it's called mm-hmm. shivers. She would read that the most often. And it was, you know, it is, it's just this cute little kid's story now, but at the time it was terrifying. There was the old dark frog was the character, this giant frog that was going to going to eat the main character, the storyteller, the frog. And um, that's what she would read. So I think my mom really, kind of turned me in that direction and and i think that that's maybe why i view everything all this interpersonal stuff through a horror lens maybe it would be different if she had if if i had been weaned on like soap operas you know or something else but at the same time here's what's cool and this is why i view horror so wild. there was this melding of genres happening because we would watch three's company all right. We'd watch that mm-hmm. comedy every week. Um, and we would watch, you know, like the love boat and we would watch all these other things and I'd see star Wars and, and, uh, close encounters of the third kind. So even though horror was probably the main part, she really exposed me to all kinds of stories, which was awesome. So maybe that's why as I fuse them together emotionally and mentally, that's why I still, cause I, I write, that's what I write. I write all these different things. Like when I see something, I want to write that through a horror lens. Like I'm going to write, like I'd love to write a Star Wars novel like through horror someday, like a horrific Star Wars novel. Somebody did that. Like Joe mm. Schreiber wrote one called like Death Troopers, I think. I'd love to do that. Like I'd love to write a horror Star Wars novel someday. So mm. yeah, I think I think all of that kind of like still lives in me now. That, that's got some potential, yeah. 
Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to talk to my agent. <laughs> yeah, please do. Yeah, right. Um, no, that, that, I mean, that fits. There's, there's plenty of reasons that we've gotten from other people about, you know, why horror and your answer is as good as any. It's interesting that, like you said, that, you know, your mom had this influence, but like you say, it, it sort of melded with all the other genres that you guys watch together too. So, yeah, you know, in your case, it's just the, the lens that you see th- things through. You that's right. Say. Yeah. I am her mad scientist experiment. Like that's <laughs> the, the monster that's resulted. <laughs> I'm sure she enjoys that. <laughs> <laughs> so last question, is there anything that you've thought of that might be relevant that hasn't come up on the call? maybe something that you thought of earlier that didn't get, get a chance to say. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit from you two, to be honest. Like I, I mm-hmm. you all have done an amazing job of like, letting me talk and getting like, you know, of like getting into my psyche and my past and my futures and my fears and hopes and loves. So like, what about you two? What is like, you know, really, is there anything lately that's been on your mind, especially with regard to like art that you've that, been thinking of? That is an, a perfect opportunity for us to pitch our Patreon, Patreon subscribers. Yeah. <laughs> because that was a, a decision that Chris and I made very early on. Uh, we started doing this by interviewing each other to, to test mm-hmm. out our questions and see whether or not they worked and, you know, how, how we felt with the, the format and whatnot. And we had always decided that we wouldn't release those, but we would make those available to Patreon subscribers. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. So it's like a um, vault here that people have access to or can oh yeah. access to. The, mm-hmm. the other thing that we give for Patreon subscribers is the full audio. So we will edit our call uh, and then release. We try to aim for between 60 to 90 minutes and we're approaching two hours here. So there will be probably around 30 minutes to 45 minutes of audio that they'll be able to go to Patreon and listen to the full, full audio if they'd like. Can you give us a teaser? Just like one thing they might hear about if they subscribe to Patreon that that, that isn't available elsewhere. Yeah, sure, I'm game. Let's see. Uh, what, what's what's some uh, one of the nuggets from my interview I can import? Um, there you go. Uh, scary dreams when you were a kid. I think uh, we've maybe only had like two or three other guests that had this one, but I had a recurring dream when I was a kid of uh, being chased around my grandmother's kitchen. Because she had one of those circular kitchens, the kitchens in the center, and the rest of the house goes around it, uh, by a large werewolf. And I think it may have had something to do with uh, gleaning a, a scene from American Werewolf in London when I was a kid, because or maybe Gamork from oh. Neverending Story, because it was that kind of wolf. It was like an on all fours, hulking, can I, large beast. Can I give like a singular yes. two word answer for the two of us? Yeah. So for Chris, uh, cannibalism. For me, cosmic horror. Mm. And yeah. if you want more information than that, then hit up Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I'm looking go. at that because I'm looking, we're like hour and 51 minutes. That's awesome. Yeah, nine minutes. So, well, I, I still get hit the closing, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> by the way, I, I won't take too much of that, but, but the American World of London, amazing. And then the Gamork, hmm. that thing is, is a nightmare machine, nightmare machine. I love right? Gamork. I could also it's see great. that coming out of the darkness or the cistern. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was a secondary topic that I didn't address, but yeah, the um, the unknown. Yeah, I'm gonna get a really mm-hmm. crappy impression here, but here's the line that always chilled my bones, chilled my marrow. His name was Atreyu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so badly. I'm still scared of that. That just gave me chills. It did. <laughs> was that when he like jumps out of the cave at you? Right before he yeah. does, his eyes flash green. He raises his, his his jaws. Oh my gosh, that was scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Cool. Well, we appreciate your time. Uh, it's been a great call. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to stop here for a moment because normally we give our guests a spot to pitch whatever it is that they're currently working on, either at the front or the back, and we completely forgot about it on this call. Of course, we were dealing with a time constraint that we normally don't deal with, but uh, I talked to Jonathan after the fact and said I wanted to record something here on his behalf. Uh, he let us know that he recently finished a sci-fi horror novel called Veil, and he's currently working on one called The Stars Have Left the Skies, but if you're looking for something that he has recently uh, put out there that you can go purchase now. The two books that he suggested were either The Dismembered or Blood Country, The Raven 2, both of which are available on Amazon. Thank you again, and thank you to anybody out there listening. Please do come visit us at HorrorMixesHappy.com. We've got a bunch of stuff that you can check out there. Merch, Patreon, buy us coffee, all that kind of fun stuff. Or just tell a friend.